Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI Grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to the East Asia Hotspots podcast brought to you by the East Asia National Resource Center at the George Washington University. I'm Richard Haddock, and I'll be interviewing today Hong Jen Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science at the National Chenggong University in Taiwan, and recently elected Secretary for the Taiwan Society of Japan Studies. His research focuses mainly on post and non-Western international relations theories. Chinese foreign policy, and cross-strait relations. Dr. Wang is the author of the book, The Rise of China and Chinese International Relations Scholarship, and co-author of China and International Theory, The Balance of Relationships. He's also published several journal articles and written book chapters that further examine China as a modern nation state and its policies in line with international relations theory. Dr. Wang is currently an East Asia Voices Initiative Fellow at the East Asia NRC at the Elliott School of International Affairs. Hong Jen, welcome. Thank you very much. Hello, Richard, and hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here today. I am very happy to share my experiences and some ideas with all of you about Taiwan, China, and United States, the three actors, the relations between these three actors. That's great. So actually, our first question is exactly on that. Your research currently with the NRC concentrates on these triangular relations between the U.S., Taiwan, and China, especially since 2008. What motivated you to undertake this project? And what are some key trends within triangular relations from 2008 that you think will be important to watch now and in the future? It's a very good question. I think for a practical reason, actually, I live here in Taiwan. The survival of Taiwan actually connected, of course, to my life. It's quite important for people here in Taiwan to know about Taiwan's real situation in Asia-Pacific region or in the global society, international society. So it's a thing that probably since the 1949, the situation between Taiwan and uh, mainland China, I mean, we can see the several different ages of a relationship development between the two sides. Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. During the past few decades, actually, the United States, even if this country is not actually graphically located in Asia, but it has a great say in the situation between Taiwan and the mainland China. 
So that's kind of a practical reasons for me to try to, I think I spent all my all academic life to understand the real situation between United States, Taiwan, and the mainland China, and how can we explain the situations between these three actors, and or, or probably how can we solve the problems uh, between Taiwan and the mainland China. It's quite from the practical reasons. But for the academic reason, because I'm a student, actually I would say that I'm a student of international studies, because right now I'm teaching Asia security courses, or the relevant courses in my university in the Department of Political Science. For the academic reasons, I think it's quite interesting to understand the situations, especially after 2008. So I think, Richard, you ask a key point here, because this year, 2008, is quite, I think it's key, maybe key year here in our discussion, because in 2008, we know that China just held Olympic Games. I mean, after 2008, because of this international event, Chinese people, I think they suddenly had great confidence in their nation. They thought that right now they are a great power in the world. They can hold this kind of international event. So they have this ability to involve the international governance, for example. 2008, we know that we have this financial crisis starting from the United States. They go through, went through the Europe and come back to Asia. But during that period of time, the performance of Asia countries to be evaluated higher than that of the United States or those European countries. I think because of this financial crisis, probably some Asia countries, especially China, they thought that, I mean, they have more confidence in their ability to deal with this kind of a similar financial crisis. It's unlike 20 years ago, mainland China, they only to be the victim of this kind of international crisis. And after 2008, probably 2010, we know that the mainland China already become the second largest economic entity in the world. That means they beat Japan as the number two in the world. I mean, in terms of uh, its economic performance, uh, economic growth. So the only country ahead of mainland China is the United States. So I mean, 2008 is quite important for people like me studying international politics. So I, I think this kind of the two major factors motivated me to undertake this project about mainland China, Taiwan, and the United States. You mentioned about what kind of key trends, I mean, from 2008. From my point of view, I think there are several things we can mention about here. The first thing I just mentioned that because we noticed that 2008 is a key year, it's a crucial year in history. I mean, this event influenced the, I would say, the configuration of our current power politics and the regional order in Asia. Configuration means that, I mean, the, the arrangement of those different powers in our current international societies, such as the arrangement between mainland China and the United States, we would say the two major countries or two great powers 
since 2008, they start to compete with each other in terms of economic competition, in terms of military competition, in terms of technology competition. I think 2008, since 2008 until so far, or probably we can expect in the future, in, in next year, in 2020 and uh, 2022 and so on, this competition will continue between these two great powers, China and the United States. That's the first point. And the second point, I think since 2008, we have seen the rise of right-wing state leaders in Asia, such as Jin Zhen-en in North Korea, Abe in Japan, uh, who just resigned as uh, Prime Minister, Hu Jinghui, the previous president in South Korea, and the most recently, Xi Jinping in China. So, I mean, since 2008, we see the extremist, I would say that the extremist or the right-wing voices arise to influence our international parties as well as international order. So that's kind of, I think, the second trend we will expect in the future continue to influence our life, especially political life or economic life. When we talk about, especially when we talk about the relationship between China and Taiwan and the United States. I have a four points here. The, the third trend, I think, especially during this time, I mentioned that China just held Olympic Games. And I mean, in 2008, China just held Olympic Games and the Chinese people have a, a strong conference since then about its nation. And uh, in 2010, China passed Japan as the world's second largest economic entity. Even right now, I think if you go to China, I think they are quite a pride about their economic performance, their technology performance, their military performance, because they always think about this, uh, this kind of 100 years of uh, humiliation from the Western countries. So that means they have this motivation to try to be strong, to try to be autonomous nation states in the world. So they, they try to be presenting these self-images in front of the Western powers. So that's probably the reason why in China, the society still support this strong leadership, Xi Jinping, to rule its countries. So we, we heard about that Xi Jinping probably will not step down when its second term has ended up. I mean, he probably will continue to his governance in China. But this actually received a strong support from the society, even if it's not actually a democratic country to elect its leadership. The last point here I would like to say that because right now we, we are expecting a new leadership in the United States, actually, from the Democratic Party. So I think probably Obama's Asia policy will come back again. Probably I think we can expect this new or maybe this old, the revival of Obama's Asia policy in Asia, of course, and but also influence the relationship between mainland China and uh, Taiwan. So that's kind of the last things we can expect because this kind of a, a revival of Obama's Asia policy will emphasize the multilateral framework in Asia 
that's quite would be a good opportunity for Taiwanese government to try to see how Taiwan can play a crucial role in promoting this multilateral framework. For example, I mean Taiwan has been become a good model in democracy. Taiwan has a good economic performance, and Taiwan has a new southbound policy during the past four years. So I mean those kind of things already provide a good foundation for Taiwan to become a part of a regional multilateral framework. So probably uh, in this sense, I mean, Taiwan and the United States can cooperate with each other. In that sense means that, I mean, Taiwan can have more power to, for example, I would say bargaining power to negotiate with uh, leadership in mainland China to talk about more, uh, I mean, probably to define more about Taiwan and China's future relationship in the I mean, in the future. So probably that's my answer for your first question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for laying out those four trends. On to China-Taiwan relations. Since President Tsai Ing-wen was elected into office in Taiwan in 2016, relations across the strait have been chilled. On China's actions from poaching Taiwan's diplomatic allies to even sending military planes repeatedly into Taiwan's air defense identification zones. How would you generally characterize the current state of cross-strait relations? Is it is it all chilled or are there other elements at play? And well, how did we get here? And then secondly, how do you see Taiwan and China relations advancing in the future? Mm, thank you. I would say that the current state of uh, cross-strait relations, I, I mean, that means Taiwan and the mainland China can be characterized as it's quite an academic jargon called a stalemate or political deadlock. That means uh, so far we do not have a healthy dialogue between Taiwan and the mainland China, not only between the governmental sides, but also from the societal sides. So far, of course, because of these uh, pandemic issues, so the exchange between the exchange of people between the two sides has been decreasing. So that's a kind of a problem for this political deadlock. It's not healthy. Some people would say that it is approaching the brink of war in the current cross-trade relationship. I'm not so pessimistic, but I don't think right now we are developing toward a healthy direction, actually. In my view, I think it is true that the political dialogue between leaders in, in two sides, in both Taiwan and China, is already ceased. But the economic and the social exchanges can be very active as long as we can experience it through the current period of COVID-19 issues. That means, I mean, for the Political part, I kind of uh, uh, see the continuous deadlock in the future, but probably the societal exchange could be much better after, I mean, in the post-COVID-19 period. In terms of your question, how did we get here? I think many factors, uh, at least I, I could think about, can contribute to the current political deadlock. For example, uh, I think... China's self-assertive behavior, for example, in Hong Kong, uh, they have uh, this kind of a new national security rules 
imposed on Hong Kong people that kind of make uh, many people in Taiwan feel about the potential reunification with uh, mainland China. Uh, if that happened, probably uh, Beijing would treat Taiwanese people the same as the way they treat Hong Kong people. So the Hong Kong issues and the uh, Xinjiang situation, China's uh, behavior in South China Sea, and uh, of course, Xi Jinping, its government, I mean, their oppressive control in governing people. We heard about a lot of bad news, how Beijing have this kind of oppressive control, such as uh, monitoring people's information to control their opinions, control the use of internet and so on. I mean, more and more, especially Taiwan's young people or young generations, they cannot accept China's this kind of behavior. Not to mention that Xi Jinping in the early 2019, Xi Jinping just gave a public speech to Taiwanese people. He said that uh, the both sides probably could work together to think about this one country, two system with probably Taiwan proposal and so on. I mean, but the point is uh, the Chinese government, they always try to use this idea or principle, one country, two system, to try to convince uh, Taiwanese people to be united with uh, mainland China in the future. But to be honest, if you ask young people here in Taiwan, they cannot accept this uh, one China, one country, two system. They are afraid of this idea proposed by Chinese government. And more and more young people, they just want to have more autonomy in Taiwan's international participation. They would like to participate more in the regional organizations, in international organizations, and so on. I think probably that's the reason why we get here right now. Yes, definitely a, a complicated and long set of issues that help us inform how the situation is today. On to uh, U.S.-China relations. In the last four years or so, maybe even a little bit longer, U.S.-China relations have not exactly been at a high point either. From trade disputes to different views about the future of Hong Kong to even global public health issues as we're experiencing now related to COVID, Tensions are high and seem to have been high for some time. What do you see are some of the main drivers of this tension? And how is Taiwan caught in the middle? Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's a good question. And I think I would like to propose four points probably to explain. Uh, Of course, you can have more points to explain these situations, especially Taiwan's caught up in, uh, in the middle between the two greater powers. For me, or from my viewpoint, I think the big problem is that two great powers, they have uh, different views, they have uh, different understandings of each other. Of course, they know, I would say that they know the language. I mean, they know the other side, what the other side is talking about in terms of language. But I think behind the two countries, I mean, each country, they have uh, different history, different culture, different philosophy, different view or different world view, and many things different. I mean, this kind of uh, the way to understand each other's kind of also prevent each other's from truly understanding the meanings or the behavior or the actions from the other side. 
the public that's the conflict arrives from. The four points I would like to specify here is that, for example, the first point I would like to say, China and the United States, of course, Taiwan, Taiwan kind of uh, on the same side uh, with uh, the United States. If we see these two groups, two groups, we, we will probably see two different regime types. So even if in Chinese constitutions, Chinese people state that China is a democratic country. It's like North Korea also say this democratic democracy turn uh, in their constitutions. But actually, we probably it's well known that China is not actually a democratic country, or it's not yet a democratic country. So far, we at best, we can say that China is an authoritarian regime, even if it's uh, not worse than that. So from the view of democratic countries, such as the United States and the Taiwan, I mean, it's really hard for a democratic countries to engage with authoritarian regime in a healthy way. So, I mean, there are a lot of things you need to do from the view of uh, United States and Taiwan in mainland China to be reformed or to be improved a lot in terms of their system. So my point is that there are two different regimes, and but the Chinese people, they cannot accept this true that it's better to become a democratic country. So, I mean, Chinese people, they would say that they are a democratic country with uh, Chinese characteristics, for example. It sounds like an excuse to other people, right, or, or to the uh, international societies. So, so far, what we see is that because the Chinese system or the Chinese government is not yet a democratic institution. So, so far we see a lot of things, such violation of human rights issues uh, in their countries. It, it cannot be accepted for the international societies. Just to see these regime types, we can find that it's quite easy for international societies to have some issues with uh, mainland China's. So that's for the first point. And the second point is that we have been observed more and more assertive behavior, original behavior from the Chinese government. As I just mentioned about these South China Sea issues, China still claims its territory, even if those territories are quite disputed with those Southeast Asia countries. But China always uh, behavior in good terms uh, quite brave or they have so much confidence in claiming their territories. But to those countries who suffer from these issues, they will be very worried about Chinese future behavior if they would take any military action to solve those territorial disputes or not. Especially since 2008, I mean, these feelings from these assertive feelings or these negative feelings from the Chinese side has become a threat to many countries in the regions, not to mention that to the, the threat to the United States and, and the Taiwan. So that's the second point. And the third point is about trade conflict. We were seeing that a serious confrontation between China and the, the United States. Some people will say that it's a trade war, uh, but I think at least it's a trade confrontations between these two greater powers. So I don't know if that's inevitable or not, but China 
it's the, the fact is that China has trade surplus with the United States. So how to solve these problems is quite tricky. But I think the main point, sometimes I hear from the views from the United States is that uh, because so far the markets is still not very open in Chinese societies. Even if they adopt this liberal market system in China, but it's not still very open. The information is not very transparent, for example, to those American businessmen or international business companies in China. So that's kind of become the third important issues contribute to the increasing tension between China and other countries, such as the United States and Taiwan. Finally, to PRC China, to mainland China, they still claim that Taiwan is part of China. But to uh, the United States, I mean, Taiwan has become a quite successful model in Asia or democratic countries to show China that how a Confucianist society like Taiwan could be integrated well with the liberal democracy in its various. Not to mention that if uh, uh, we... I mean, audience read the news uh, just happened uh, several days ago. The Secretary of State, Pompeo, just mentioned that the United States never recognized that Taiwan is part of China. So, I mean, different recognitions of the status quo kind of prevent the two countries, China and the United States, can work together quite smoothly. Those are four points I want to mention about and to answer your question. On the flip side, and you made mention of this a couple of times, U.S.-Taiwan relations are arguably at their highest point since after 1979. And that could be evidenced by consistent U.S. military arms sales to Taiwan in the last couple of years and several acts of legislation from U.S. Congress, such as the Taiwan Travel Act, Taiwan, and currently proposed the Taiwan Relations Reinforcement Act. So what factors, uh, in your view, explain this development in U.S.-Taiwan relations? I think it's a long story for this current result. Some people in Taiwan, they would argue that because in the past four years, we have uh, strong support from President Trump. Uh, so because of a different leadership type, so President Trump kind of showed its strong commitment to Taiwan's role in the regime and to Taiwan's performance or to Taiwan as a sovereign country in the international society. So, so in the past four years, Trump has shown, I mean, this administration has shown its great support to Taiwan as long as, uh, as well as its people here in Taiwan. But from my point of view, I think it's not only Trump, but it's also bipartisan consensus and support. Taiwan, uh, a country, has, has spent a lot of effort in the past of at least four decades in the international society to try to demonstrate or prove itself as a normal country, so as a sovereign country in the world. So the fact for me is that Taiwan actually is already a de facto country in the world. And of course, a very good friend of many people in the United States, a very good friend of U.S. congressmen 
uh, and so on. I mean, we have a lot of good friends. Uh, also, we have a lot of great friends from the United States. So, I mean, they understand Taiwan's performance in the past few decades. Uh, they understand that it's not easy for Taiwan to transfer from an authoritarian regime to a democratic countries. That has been called as a model in Asia. So it's not easy to complete this process. So right now it's quite, I mean, many people in, in Taiwan, we uh, show our thanks to this strong support from the bipartisan sites. And of course, from my view, Taiwan should deserve, also deserve getting respect from other countries in the world to be equally treated for its economic, political, and cultural contributions to, to the world. Not to mention during the current period of pandemic time, Taiwan has offered its medical supplies as long as its experiences to the international societies. On the other side, if Taiwan to be ignored from the international society is quite, it would be very abnormal or it would be very unhealthy for international societies without uh, Taiwan as part of it. With recent U.S. elections in mind, a question for many is, how would a Biden administration conduct its foreign policy? So how do you think a Biden team would affect triangular relations between the U.S., Taiwan, and China? And what aspects of U.S. foreign policy would change or stay the same with the current administration's approach? I think it will change a lot. But of course, in the beginning of, especially in the, probably in the first year, or in, in the beginning of Biden's turn, we will not see a dramatic change or dramatic differences from that of previous administrations. But in the long term, I think the change will be definitely different from the current one. The current administration has an ambitious plan to try to influence the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China. It's sometimes about leadership personality, right? From my observations, I think Biden as a politician, especially if we examine his past performance as a senator, it's kind of a long time record already there. We can see that this new president is a very mild, very nice person. I'm not saying that Trump is not nice, but I'm saying that they have a different style. So that's probably the key point. If this leadership is not so aggressive or not so unpredictable, then probably we can look back its past record in order to predict the future influence and what kind of policy influence this new leadership bring about to Taiwan or to the mainland China. Uh, so far from my understandings, especially I read some policy analysis or articles from Biden's national security team, I found that the key theme is that they would like to go back to normality. Of course, it, it always depends on how do you define this term, normality. But from my understanding, they probably will go back to very similar like that Asia policy or, uh, had been made in Obama period of time. 
And uh, on the other hand, uh, the way they treat China or the way they recognize China is quite different from the current administrations. They recognize that China is a major power, even if not a greater power. They recognize that China probably is a threat, but it's not a threat like that Soviet Union in the Cold War. They are different threats. In the current situations, China is a major trading partner with the United States. And from these ideas, they, I mean, Biden and his team recognize that they need to coexist with mainland China, even if it's a threat or even if it's a, a big challenge uh, to the development of, of, of the United States. So, I mean, the way they define China is very different from the way the current administration define. So just at this point, we can probably expect that they would use more healthy or more dialectical approach to engage with the mainland China, not to try to decoupling with mainland China. They will have more engagement, have more conversation, have more probably more official or an official meeting with the mainland China and their people to have a, at least they have more way to exchange the ideas from the both sides instead of just demonstrate a very strong and ambitious strategies toward the other side. So probably that's a, I mean a key point that we can and we can find this best to analyze the, the future influence that will bring up Taiwan or um, mainland China. So looking towards the future, what trends do you think will have the most significant impact on triangular relations, such as public health management related to COVID or technology development? If you could pick a few trends you think we should watch, what would they be? I will pick up security and defense. Right now, I think COVID-19 as a pandemic issue, it will go through quite sooner or later, I think. In terms of uh, technology development, so far we see actually Huawei as a big telecom companies. It's already uh, have a new way to deal with the challenges from the United States. So, so, so far, I don't think this uh, technological competition would be a big issue to influence this uh, triangle relations. It's just a technical issue. It's not a fundamental issues between these reactors. I think the most dangerous things is about the security and defense issues because so far, the Chinese government still blame United States that they violate the three communicate, I mean, the one part of uh, commitment that the United States in history promised uh, uh, the Chinese government in terms of uh, not selling arms, military uh, weapons or arms uh, to Taiwan. I think that's a big issue right now. Chinese government still care about this uh, commitment, still care about this promise, especially in the uh, last half year. People in Taiwan, uh, we feel more and more, we, I think we were receiving more and more signals from mainland China, from Beijing. There is a high possibility for Beijing government to take a military action over Taiwan 
So that's the reason why we continue to buy more and more advanced military weapons from the United States. But unfortunately, the United States is the only country in the world can sell arms weapons to Taiwan. That's quite unfortunate. I mean, we feel kind of isolated from this side. So for students or other learners tuning in who would like to learn more about triangular relations between the U.S., Taiwan, and China, where do you suggest they start, and are there any resources you recommend? Regarding a book, academic book, or, or some, if you want to have more in-depth analysis, I have a book uh, published in 2013, The Rise of China and the Chinese International Relations Scholarship. In my book, for example, Chapter 7, I describe this triangle relationship quite well in detail. So that's probably uh, the one people who are interested in this topic can refer to. And of course, uh, other books such as very famous American scholar Robert Sutter, Robert Sutter, his famous book, Chinese Foreign Relations. In this book, chapter, also Chapter 7, mentioned about uh, relations U.S. relations with Taiwan, this book has very detailed explanations. One more book from Harry Harding, another very famous U.S. scholar, his 1992 book, A Fragile Relationship, the United States and China since 1972. This is a classic book, offer a historical background regarding how Taiwan, actually its official name is Republic of China. How this Republic of China, Taiwan, in history has a strong connection between People's Republic of China and the United States. This book from Harry Harding has a very detailed analysis for this particular issue. That's great places to start. And both professors Robert Sutter and Harry Harding are or have been affiliated with GW. So thank you for pointing out some of the faculty at our university. Well, thank you so much, Hung Jen, for a great discussion about triangular relations. I think it's an important set of relationships that we all should keep in mind as we move forward, especially those who are interested in international relations and foreign policy. So thanks again for joining us and tune in next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc at gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh